So I get to this topic today. In, in, in the beginning of Genesis 18, last week, like I said, is kind of this pinnacle in uh, Abraham's life. And he's this great moment of faith. It's so great that it's talked about 2,000 years later. And like, well, that was really cool. I like that. that I like that sermon a lot because I think it gives a, a new angle on faith that you know, I'd never really considered before. I had a lot of people tell me I never thought about faith like that. And so that was great. And then this week's sermon, I kind of get stuck on the first part of Genesis 18. And I'm thinking, I, I don't know, God. This sermon almost seems like it doesn't belong in big church. This almost seems like something, you know, you should go to vacation Bible school and get or you know, CCD class for you Reformed Catholics. And it's like, you know, just something like maybe there, you know, you could teach with flanograms or something. I don't know if this really fits. And what I want to do is I want to learn about great faith. And this doesn't seem to be moving towards that. And uh, God challenged me, I think, with a question that I'm going to then in turn challenge you. Why do you want great faith? You know, why do you want great faith? Now, if you don't want great faith, that's fine. Don't even think about this question. But if you do, if you thought to yourself, I wish my faith were greater, then why do you want it? Or maybe put another way, what would you do differently? Or how would your life be different if you had great faith? And, you know, there's a lot of answers for that. You know, if I had great faith, I think my prayers would get answered more. You know, because that seems to be a big part of getting prayers answered is faith. So maybe if I had more faith, I'd see some of these prayers that had been praying answered. That'd be great. Um, You know, I just would have a better relationship with God, probably. You know, I'd probably live through the doubt a little bit easier because my faith is greater. And I think all these different things... But, but God was really challenging me, and I'm going to come back to that question, but just think about that for a moment. What would you do? How would your life be different if you had great faith? Okay, now, stick a pin in it. We're moving on to the story. So here's, here's where we were last, last week. Uh, Abraham came to God and said, look, this whole thing with my child's not going to happen through Sarah. I have a child through Hagar. Just, let's just go ahead and declare them heir. His name's Ishmael. Let's go ahead and, and bless him, and let's just move on with this. Right? And God said, nope. I am still going to give you a child. It's going to come from you and Sarah, like I said, 25, 24 years ago. I'm going to do that. And uh, so we talked about how Abraham really didn't necessarily show great faith. He laughed in God's face when he told him that. Ha, 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 that's not going to happen. But then he went out and did it because, as we said last week, faith is not a feeling. Faith is a decision. So that's kind of the key point of last week's sermon. So we go from there to chapter 18, and I'm ready for the child. I don't know about you. You know, we've been talking about Abraham now for you know, several, several weeks, when's God going to give this child a promise to him? And it, it kind of happens not now, but he comes in chapter 18 and tells them when. So we finally are going to get a date. And that's really important. Um, I know you women know how important it is to get a guy to give you a date on something, like my wife. When are you going to take out the garbage? I'm going to. Yes, but when? I need to know when you're going to do that. Before Christmas, when's that going to happen? Yeah, I saw that. When's the bathroom going to be finished? I, I saw that. I wasn't going to go there. Yeah, okay. But, you know, we get, 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 get dates. It's nice that we are well-intentioned, right? We, we have these ideas. We're going to do it. We promise you we're going to do it. Uh, when? We got to get a date. So finally, God's going to come and give a date. He's going to give a date, and that kind of helps. So um, that starts out, and, and here it goes. So Abraham's sitting at the door of his tent, because apparently it's a very large tent. I keep messing with my chair. Um, I'm like sitting way down and looking up at you guys. Uh, and, and he lifts his eyes up and he looks and behold, there's three men standing in front of him. Now, they didn't just appear, but you know, I don't know if you've ever been in like in a really, really hot area where like you can't stare out in the distance for very long because it kind of hurts your eyes. You see those waves coming up off of the, off the hot land and things. And so he's just kind of there and he's kind of wiping his eyes and, he look, and there are people coming. Now, he doesn't live on, you know, next to Route 48, where cars go by all the time and visiting. He lives kind of in the middle of nowhere because he's a very rich landowner. 
You know, so his tent's not going to be at the edge of his property. It's going to be in the middle of his property. And so people coming by his tent doesn't happen very often. And it's a big deal because, you know, they don't have internet or television or any of those things that ruin lives. They, you know, they, they, uh, they simply have tents and, and, and farm stuff. And so a new person coming by, they bring news. They bring, you know, uh, ideas that are going on in the world around them. And so it's kind of a big deal. And, and suddenly here's these new people. And he gets excited. When he sees him, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and says, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And he goes on. He says, um, in fact, I'll bring a morsel of bread you can have to refresh yourselves. And after that, then you can go on, but you've come by. In other words, he's saying, look, if it's okay, if you don't mind, if I, if I, stay here for a little bit. Let me, let me give you some refreshments and you can rest up before you go on. And they say, go ahead. That sounds good. So Abraham goes quickly into the tent to Sarah and says, quick, three sayings of flying flour. Knead it and make cakes. So he's like, he goes in and says, I need three, three cakes, quick. I can't imagine me doing that with Victoria. <laughs> knock, knock. Hey, Vicka, uh, three cakes, real fast. I got guests coming. You know, it's like, okay. So then he goes and runs to the herb, takes a calf, which was tender and good, and gives it to someone else who prepares it. So he's not just going to give him bread, right? He's going to actually kill a fatted calf. And then he took curds and milk and a calf he prepared, and he set all before him. He must have been flying around there, getting all this ready while they were getting rested, you know? And he stood by them under the tree while they ate, like to make sure they had everything they needed, almost like he's a waiter. And then they say to him, where's Sarah, your wife? Now, probably they've been talking a little bit. That's how he knows. Or maybe they heard him shout, Sarah, Sarah, get, get, get those pies ready. Uh, and he says, well, she's in the tent. And then finally the scripture said who these people are. The Lord, this is like the Lord and two of his angels. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And when I do, Sarah, your wife will have a son. Now it takes nine months to have a baby, so you got to get busy, you know, because I'm going to be back this time next time, next year, and he's already going to be here. So, uh, so we kind of have a date now, and uh, they, they tell him that, and uh, the question, I think, is why now? You know, last week he does this amazing thing after God tells him that. He goes off and circumcises 387 people, and that's kind of a big deal, and, and he's done many big deals, but I believe God waited until this moment to do it for a reason, because I believe God was trying to catch Abraham doing something good. Now, that wasn't hard to do with Abraham. I think he was a good guy. I think he did a lot of good things. But I think God is using a technique that parents know, and uh, I hate to say this, but put this in the same category, but dog trainers know. Uh, you sometimes, if you're trying to reinforce good behavior, you wait till you see it, then you reinforce it. See, it's one thing if you tell them to do it and then you reinforce it. But that's not as good. Every parent knows this. Is you catch them doing something good and you reward it, right? Because it's like, wow, look at you. You did that on your own. You reward it. I believe God's rewarding good behavior here. And again, this is who Abraham is. Don't get me wrong. It's not like he's only done this this time. He's a very generous man. We see that because he takes in his brother's son after his brother dies and treats him as his own. When they're, when they're in land, you know, and they're, they're kind of divvying up the land, he says, you take whatever you want, and then I'll take what's left over. That's hugely generous in a way nobody would have been. He's a generous man. But God waited for one of those generous moments before he came and told him this. He gave him the opportunity to be generous and then told him this because I just believe he's trying to reinforce something, not just for Abraham, but for us. And so while he's talking, Sarah's listening, right? She's in the tent door and she's listening. And she's listening, and Sarah says, <laughs> the, the way the women at 
past, which means she's through menopause, right? And she's listening, and Sarah laughs to herself. And you can kind of be with her on this. She's uh, 89 years old, right? Uh, and so, um, well, is that right? No, yeah, yeah, it's 89 years old. So she's 10 years old, younger than Abraham, and Abraham's about 99 here. Uh, after I'm worn out, she says, <laughs> 89, she's worn out, and my Lord is old. Now I'm going to get pleasure. Now, they, like I said last week, they hadn't had conjugal visits in a while. This is nuts. He's like, I don't, she's, I don't know. How's this even going to happen? She laughs. What are you going to do? It's so crazy. She just laughs. But this is not a laugh of joy. This is a laugh, laugh of disbelief. You know the laugh. Uh, and so the Lord says to Aaron, why does Sarah just laugh just now? Why, why would she laugh right now? And, uh, you know, again, we can certainly understand why, because it's crazy. It's crazy. But then he goes on and says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I can do this. I can do this. And at the appointed time, I'm going to return to you. This time next year, about this time next year, when I get here, Sarah's already going to have a son. And then Sarah now denies it. I didn't, I didn't laugh. She goes, oh, yes, you did. But he's not mad at her for it. He's just calling her out. You know, just the same thing he does with Abraham. So he says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. After 25 years of waiting, 25 years since he first came, said, rise and go, 25 years. Why now? Why now? I believe it's not at all coincidence that he comes right after they show kindness to a stranger. And in fact, uh, it might be tempting to think that when you see how Abraham talks to them, that he actually knew who this was, you know, because he calls them lords uh, and, you know, I'll be your servant and all this. But actually, that was just the, the culture. And if you're in that culture, especially in that time, and you had strangers approach you, you treat them formally and politely like we used to do in this country. We don't anymore, uh, but we used to, you know, there's a very informality rules now in America, but there was a time, you know, you met somebody for the first time, you were very polite and formal with them. You know, my, my dad would be called Mr. Grice, you know, not, not ever Ken. Uh, it was always Mr. Grice, and, and until people got to know you, it was always that. Uh, Ukraine's even stronger with what they have. Uh, Victoria's, you know, I always call her Victoria, but actually if I know her well, I'm supposed to call her Vika. But people who don't know her well is not supposed to call her Vika, and a kid will never call her Vika, not in Ukraine, you know. So it's, it's, it's like that. There's formalities that, that, that used to be a lot bigger and stronger. In this time, in this culture, that was how it was done. You know, it was like you'd be very formal and very polite, right? Because you don't even know who they are. And so I don't believe that he had any idea who they were until God revealed himself. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews says this, and I think he's talking exactly about this incident. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And King James Version, I actually kind of like the way they put it, they put it very poetically. They, they use the word, they have entertained angels unaware. So angels unaware. And, and so I think that this is something that's very, very important and near and dear to God's heart. I think the reason why he withheld the actual fulfillment of the promise until this is because he wanted us to notice what Abraham did. He also wanted us to notice who Abraham was. And it's like he put this on. This is who he was. And I think it's important to know that you're never going to be a person of great faith unless you are also a person of great kindness. Because the whole purpose of this is to have the fruits of the Spirit in us so that people look at us and see God. And God's kind. And if you look at Jesus, he's kind, and so are his disciples. It's all, through, all throughout the, the Bible. God rewards kindness to strangers in a very special way. So I'm going to give you a, a couple quick examples of this to kind of drill it home. Uh, the first one is Elijah and the widow. 
And let me set this up real quick. Victoria said I took too long on this last night, uh, and so I'm going to try to be quicker today so I don't bore her. But uh, basically, real quick setup on this. What's happened is Elijah has approached the king, and because of his wickedness and evilness, has said you will, there'll be a drought in the land until God restores the rain. And so then he goes and hides, and there's a drought in the land, and everything dries up, not just in that area, but all the surrounding area. And you know, when that happens, money gets tight because that was like everything to them. That was commerce because you could, your animals are going to die. You have no crops. When you have no water, you're in big, big, big trouble. And so that's what happens. It goes throughout the land. God takes care of Elijah for a long time. And then like halfway through it, he goes, you know what? I'm going to send you to somebody else now to take care of you. And so that's where we pick up the story. Elijah rose and went to Zarephath, which isn't, by the way, in Israel. So he went to a city of Gentiles. And uh, when he came to the gate of the city, Indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. Now, why is she gathering sticks? Well, because she needs firewood, and that's all you can do in those days. And so she's just gathering sticks. Now, if she had money, you know, then she could have maybe had somebody deliver firewood, but she doesn't. So she's out gathering her own sticks. And he calls her and says, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. So he comes into the city. He sits down just like a man and asks a woman to bring him a drink. So that's what basically happens here. This is Elijah. He says, bring me a drink. And she just, she's going to go do it. As she's going to get it, he calls her and says, by the way, bring me a little bit of bread while you're at it. You know, we go by your house. Can you bring me some bread too? Like, man, what a pushy prophet this is, right? He sits down, not only want water, but, you know, you can go get me some bread, too. I want a little bit of something to eat. I'm, I'm hungry after my long journey. And she turns to him. Now, now, you have to understand that in those days especially, still somewhat true this day, but in those days especially, widows had nothing. Because in those days, men owned things. And if you were going to own property or something, you had to be a guy. So a woman usually would have already had her property taken by his family. Now, they're supposed to take care of her, but they usually oftentimes would find ways out of their responsibilities. They'd get the land, but they wouldn't take care of her. So the Bible is very, very keen on taking care of widows and orphans because they had nothing in those days. And so God sends Elijah, his prophet, to a widow of all people. You would think, man, you could have taken, taken him someplace with somebody who had more, but goes to the widow. Now watch what happens as she turns. Remember, she is not a Jew. She is not a worshiper of Jehovah. And so she turns and she says this, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. I have only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And you see one of these sticks I'm gathering? You know why? I'm going to use them to make a small little loaf of bread. And my son and I are going to eat it. And then we're going to die. This will be our last meal. I don't have it. It's not that I don't want to share with you. I've got nothing. I don't really even have enough for me and my son. And we're going to eat it and die. You want to eat it and die with us? Because that's what my life looks like right now. That's where I'm heading. This is all I have. And so uh, Elijah says, no, no, that's okay. Listen, do not fear. Go and do as you say, but make me a small cake from it first. First. Not later. First. See, this is, this is crazy, but God always wants it first. That's faith. Faith is first. There's a story a missionary told about uh, he, he was in this village and he was teaching the concept of tithing. This little boy was there. The next day, uh, there's a knock on his door. He opens up, and this little boy's got this fish. He says, here. <laughs> he takes it. He says, what's this? He says, that's my tithe. And he looks, and it's all he has, one fish. He says, where are the other nine fish? He says, they're still in the river. I'm going to go get them. 
You know, so that's, that's the concept, right? First, first to God. And so this is where he's giving an opportunity to show a great deal of faith. And she does, but he promises this. He says this, he says, uh, give it to me first and afterwards make some for yourself and your son. With what? He's using, she's using it all up to give him. But he says, here's why. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour will never be used up, nor shall the jar of oil until this drought's over. So here's, here's the opportunity here. I'm going to let God take care of you throughout this whole drought. By the way, during this drought, other people are going to starve to death in the streets, but not this widow. Because she has the faith. And she goes and she does exactly the same. And did according to Elijah. And she and he and her whole household, which was basically just her son, ate for many days. The bin of flour was never used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which had been spoken to by by, by Elijah. So her faith kept them alive, but that happens after she was generous and kind to a stranger. She didn't know who Elijah was. If she had, she probably wouldn't be talking to him because there was a price on his head. They were trying to kill him. So here's an opportunity now for her to show great faith, but she shows it through kindness to a stranger. And I want to show you, she wasn't praying for him. She wasn't sending him warm wishes. She was feeding him. She was giving him something to drink. So that's really kind of cool that God was then keeping her alive, but wait a minute, there's more. God plays a deep game. He's not stopping here. This wasn't really why God set all this up. I'm sure Elijah thought it was, but this is not the end. This is just the beginning because this is just who God is because later, as a famine's coming to an end, as it happened after all these things, the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness, like the way Bible puts this, was so serious there was no breath in him i.e. he died. He died. He passed, passed his last breath and he died. And, and she goes, Elijah says, what do you have against me that you would take my son? Why would you do that? I'd rather die with him than die without him. This is crazy. And Elijah says, give me your son. And he's kind of cool on the outside, but inside he's freaking out. What's going on? He doesn't know what's going on. He has no idea what's going on. So he takes him out of the room, carries him up to where he was staying and lays him down in the bed. He shuts the door and then he freaks out. This is good. This is the way Christians should do it in quiet of the room. Then you freak out. He cries out to the Lord. Oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? God didn't kill her son. Her son was always going to die. That's why he sent Elijah there. See, see he knew. I don't, we don't know why he died. Probably some sickness or illness. He was going to die. And that's why Elijah was sent there. Because God knew he was going to cry out to him and God was going to heal him. So he actually sent him there to save the son's life and not let him die. And so God, I pray, let the soul come back to him. And then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah calmly takes him back down. Here's your son. You know, I like this. He's like real cool. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, no, no big deal. Just raise a child from the dead. It's cool, you know. So he gives the son back. But I love this because the woman takes the son so excited. But look what she says. Now, by this, I know that you are a man of God. Really? Now? We have watched oil and flour in a jar not go empty for months. Only now we say, yeah, I guess maybe you might be, you know, might be a man of God. This is like a tough crowd, you know. Man, this is really tough when, when you have to see a resurrection from the dead before you believe. But that's a big deal, right? So it's a really big deal. So God actually sent Elijah to her, not only to prolong their lives by giving them food, but to raise the son from the dead when he died. That's pretty cool. And that's a great story. And it actually parallels nicely with Abraham's story. 
Because watch what happens in Abraham's case. He's given a life. In her case, a life is saved. That's pretty cool. I could stop there, but I'm just getting started. This is all throughout the Bible, as a matter of fact. And so now I'm going to skip ahead to exhibit B. This is Elisha, a little bit different uh, than Elijah, a different man, further up in the thing. And there's a very famous story called the Shunammite woman. Now, I was like, quickly set the stage here. He's traveling all around. Elisha goes around and he does all kinds of things for God. He preaches, he speaks for God, he gives prophecy, but he also does miracles. He's like God's servant on earth. And so he's been doing that. And the Shunammite woman takes note of him. Now she's called a notable woman in the Bible, which means she's rich, family rich, all kind of money. So she's a notable woman. She's probably very well connected in the government and the people really respect her. But she sees him and she says, you know, come and eat. You know, you're not getting very good food. Come to my house. We'll give you a good meal. And Elisha never passes up a good meal. So he goes there and they have this great meal and they have, the, you know, he, he speaks with the family and they have this great time together. And it got to be that every time he came by, he would turn in to go to her house and get a meal and spend the night, right? So she lived over the whole estate. And so she says to her husband, you know what? This is a holy man of God. We should do something. Let's... Let's take, a, let, let's, let's take notice of the fact that he comes by here a lot and he has no place to stay. So instead of making him stay in a hotel and come by occasionally, let's make a small upper room up there on the wall. And then she thinks about it. What would a man of God need? We'll put a bed in there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. She really thought about this. This is what a man of God would need. And we'll put it there. And whenever he comes, he can just go there and stay. It's like it'll be his home away from home and could just stay there. And she really took the time in order to think about it and do it in order to make room in her life for the man of God to come by. Always a good idea to make room in your life for God, by the way. And amazing things will happen if you just have God coming by. And so she's done all that. And so they do. Uh, and as it happened, there, on one day, uh, he came by and uh, he was talking to his, his servant. And he says, you know, we should do something for her. What can we do for her? And he actually goes to uh, her once and asks her, what can I do for you? And she says, nothing. That's, I'm uh, skipping that part. And I thought that's really an interesting because now when he talks to the servant, he says, what can we do for her? Her servant says, well, she has no children and her husband's old. Oh, she has no children. This is interesting to me because in those days, like a woman's worth was established by how many children she had. And it was a really big deal, especially sons, somebody to carry on the family name. It was really, really important. She didn't have any of that. She had riches, she had family name, but she had no children, which certainly was difficult on her. But I want to show you that she never, never, never let that unfulfilled desire turn into bitterness. That's an important thing. She wasn't bitter at all about it. She never mentioned to Elijah. She didn't say anything. She didn't let any bitterness stop her. And it's really important because bitterness will kill kindness. We need, to, we need to develop kind lives, and, and I believe we do. We need to get bitterness out. Because the bitterness is like poison that will just kill it at the root. So we've got to get that out. And so um, when, he, when, when Elisha finds out she doesn't have a child, she says, well, well, bring her up. Let's tell her. So they go get her, and he says, you know what? About this time next year, look at the parallel between this and the story of Abraham. About this time next year, um, you're going to embrace your son. And she says, don't mess with me. <laughs> Basically, she says, hey, 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 hey. You know what? This is a dream that I've had for a long time, and I put it away. I finally got to the point where I'm no longer crying when I walk by that empty room in my house. I'm over it. Don't mess with me. Don't, don't you go tell me to get my hose back up. I, I, I've shut that off. I'm, I'm okay. He says, no, no, about a year from now, 
you'll have a son. And so uh, he leaves and comes back about a year and son of a gun. <laughs> there he is. She's got her son, just like he said. You know, again, the parallels with this and what's going on in Abraham's life are very, very strong. Uh, and again, I think it's pointed out, should be pointed out, it was after she was kind to a stranger that God gave her the desire of her heart. She wasn't even asking for it anymore. She wasn't even praying for this anymore. He gave her the desire of her heart. And that is incredible. That's a cool story. But wait, there's more. Because God doesn't stop with one thing. He never stops with one thing. So what happens, and I'll skip through some of the details of this, but what happens is the son grows up and dies. He's in the field one day with his dad, and he gets, they believe in aneurysm, sounds like his head starts hurting. He goes and, and uh, dies, like in his mother's arms. He's just, you know, I don't know, about seven or eight years old at this point. And she takes the body and puts it in Elijah's room. He's not there. And she goes after him. She says, I know one person who can help me. He's dead, but I know a person who speaks for the living God. And so she goes and finds him, and Elijah tries to, he has no idea why she's coming. And Elijah says to his servant, well, go do whatever she wants, and it fails. And she says, I'm not leaving without you. And so Elijah says, okay, uh, I'll go with you. And he has no idea why. She hasn't told him, and God hasn't told him. And so uh, the, he follows her back. So um, when Elijah came into the back to, with her to the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. There's a shock. I guess he figured it out at that point. Oh, this is it. Okay. All right. And so he shuts the door, gets alone with God, and he prays over the body like several times. He prays over the body and keeps praying for God and praying for God. You know, please restore this, this child's spirit to him. And uh, when he was all done, like doing, going through that many, many, many times, uh, he finally gets to the point where the child warms up and he stretches himself out and he prays for him. And I love this. The child sneezed seven times. Why? Why does the Bible say he sneezed seven times? I think it's because he sneezed seven times. I, I honestly don't know that there's any kind of reason for that, right? I don't think it's like the seventh one brought his spirit back. I think you know, six sneezes wouldn't be enough. I just think the Bible said, well, he sneezed seven times. I guess I'll write that down, the writer here. Uh, so anyway, he opens his eyes, and he calls to the Shumanite woman. She comes in, and he says, well, you better pick up your son. He's, he's sneezing, and, and she falls to the feet, bows to the ground, and she picked up her son, and she went out. So again, not only did God reward her with a child, but he saved the child from a disease, probably an aneurysm. So there's two stories, but I got one more for you here. God's not done yet. One more. I'm going to give you, and, and I can actually find a lot of these. And the reason why I keep pointing them out is I want to show you this pattern. Kindness to stranger. And the reason why that's important, why a stranger? Because a stranger's not going to pay you back. You know, sometimes you help a friend out, and you know if you're in need, the friend will help you out. But a stranger passing by you, and you help them out, you'll never see them again. So this really shows where your heart is. Are you just trying to be kind? Or are you kind of doing something to get something? Right? So kindness to a stranger. Let me give you one. This is, this is a guy you probably know, Jesus. In this case, he's the stranger. He's, he's going through now. What happens, this happens in a, in a, a book of John. And it happens several times. Um, there's three stories about Mary and Martha and uh, their brother, whose name is Lazarus. So what happens is that uh, they're coming by and Martha's kind of like the Shumanite woman. She's very wealthy and she's got it going on. She's a businesswoman. She's very organized, a little bit of a type A personality. And she talks Jesus into coming over to her house to visit. And he does. And they, they became friends. He became friends with the whole family. And the Bible actually tells us he loved them. 
They're good, close friends of his. Wherever he came by, just like the Shumanite woman, he would go stay with Mar at Martha's house because it was her house, and Mary was there, and Lazarus was there. He got to know them all very, very, very well. I'm going to skip over some of the stories um, about this, but what happens after this, after he's been by several times, they establish a friendship, is he's in a, he's in a city about mm, days right away, and Lazarus gets sick and is going to die. He's like sick unto death. And so um, they, they uh, said, okay, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to go. So Jesus comes and he, um, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was the brother of Mary and his sister Martha, and, and her sister Martha. And the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, your very good friend is sick. I was like, you know, don't wanna kind of make a big deal of this, but the guy you really good friends with, he's sick. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And he says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus, they all knew him, uh, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. And his disciples say, what for? He's asleep. He wake up on his own. And uh, he says, well, okay, I'm, I guess I wasn't being clear. Uh, he died. So uh, he just tells him plainly, I was trying to be gentle about this, but Lazarus died. And uh, that's okay because you're going to see a miracle now. I'm actually glad for your sake because a miracle is going to happen. So he goes there. Upon his arrival, he finds Jesus. Uh, he's already, uh, Lazarus is already in the tomb. In fact, he's been there for four days. That's a very long time for him to be there. So that's the setup. So he's going to come, and he's going to come to the house. And they sent for him, but he didn't arrive in time. He's too late. God's too late. And Lazarus is dead. But as I like to say, the infinite God is Never out of time. So Martha comes out to Jesus and says, too late. Lazarus is dead. If you'd been here sooner, he wouldn't be dead. And Jesus says, can you, can you trust me? And she says, I don't know. I, I understand that he's going to be raised. He says, if he's going to be raised again. He says, your brother will rise again. He's trying to tell her. She says, oh, I know in the final day. I understand. I know who you are. I know we'll all be risen in the final day. But he's dead now. Here and, the, here and now, he's dead. And Jesus talks to her for a little bit, and she's just not getting what he's trying to say. He's trying to give her a hint that I'm here to do a miracle greater than what you asked. You asked for a healing. I'm going to give you a resurrection. The greatest miracle, actually, Jesus is probably going to perform on earth. It's about to come up. He saved it for one of his friends. And so uh, they finally go uh, to the house, and Mary hears, and she, she rushes out because she heard Jesus is there. And the first thing she says is, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. These are true statements, by the way. There's nothing untrue about what either sister said. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, it's okay. Take me to where he is. And so they finally take him to the tomb. And this is like one of my favorite prayers Jesus prays. Because here it is. I'm going to read this. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. I said that for the benefit of the people around here. That just cracks me up that Jesus does that. He's like, he's like talking. They actually hear him say that. I just said that for the people who are here. I know you always hear me. Because he didn't have to do that at all. That's the whole point. And then he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out with cloth wrapped around his face. And Jesus says, God, take off the dead you know, grave cloth. He's alive. So here's the situation. This all took place. The reason the friendship, he's, he's good friends with them, but it all started because Martha first offered Jesus her home whenever he was by. She didn't have to do that. 
A lot of people visited with Jesus and had him visit with them. They didn't do that. Because Jesus doesn't come alone, y'all. He comes with 12 hungry men. I mean, it's, it's a big deal to have them over. It's not just Jesus. It's the disciples. You've got to feed them all. That's why when he turns and says, you're our friend Lazarus, they all knew Lazarus. They hung out there. They knew who Lazarus was. This was a big thing. Martha says, whenever you and your disciples come by, Bethany is where they lived. Whenever you come by Bethany, our home is your home. We're going to open it up to you. That's a big deal. She didn't have to do that. She did that before she even knew who Jesus was, really. She just knew he was a good man that was trying to do God's work. And by the way, when she chose to be Jesus' friend, she made herself an enemy with the temple. And she was a Jew. There had been privileges revoked from her because she was friends with Jesus. And the people who ran the temples already didn't like him. It wouldn't be long from this, by the way, that Jesus is crucified. But it all starts because she showed a kindness to Jesus, who was a stranger to her. Here's the deal. God never wastes a kindness. Ever. There's always a reward for kindness given. You may not see it here on earth, but I believe the reason why God shows these stories in the Bible of Elijah, Elijah, and Martha, and Abraham is because he wants us to remember that we're here for a purpose. And a lot of times when we seek greater faith, we're seeking it selfishly. Let's be honest. I want to see my prayers answered. I want to have a better relationship with God. I want to be able to not live through the doubt. I want to have better guidance. I want to see the gifts of the Spirit. It's kind of selfish. And what I believe God's tying all this stuff into is, yeah, but for what? What's the purpose? In every one of these stories, you know, it actually seemed like that kindness was a small thing, but it was literally life and death. Literally life and death. People lived or died depending on that kindness. They didn't even know it. That's not why they did it. They just simply were trying to be kind to somebody. And I'm like, as I'm preparing a sermon, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, well, God, God, this sounds like a Mr. Rogers episode. This whole sermon comes down to this. You're telling us, be nice? Honestly, here's the point. To be a Christian of great faith, you must first be a Christian of great kindness. And that's what, you know, God kind of hit me with. This is why we need to preach on kindness. Because faith has to be tied back to kindness. That's what it's for. That's what this is all for. In fact, James, Jesus' brother, puts it this way. What good is it if someone says he has faith but has no works, does no kind things? Watch how he describes works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of them says to them, hey, just go in peace, be warm, be filled. You know, the original send warm wishes. And yet you don't give them what's necessary for their body. What use is that? So what, what good is this? Faith of yours. What is that? It's nothing. It's dead. But I want you to see that he's not talking about praying for them. This is something that, you know, when God, says, God said, what do you want faith for? I said, well, I'll pray for people when they come, you know. So you know, if I had the great faith, we could see these great miracles. I pray for healings of people's life. That's good. This isn't at all what God's talking about, though. Not that we shouldn't pray for people and for healings, but he's saying, no, it's got to be a lot more practical. Blue collar. You know, our, our saviors came... And as far as I know, this is unique in religions. Our Savior came to us not as a teacher, but as a carpenter. We have a blue-collar Savior. We're called to a blue-collar religion. Jesus fit right in in Pittsburgh, right? We're, we're supposed to be blue-collar Christians, practical, taking care of people, real simple stuff. The examples he gives, you know, sometimes we talk about faith and works. Oh, works are bad because we think we have to work our way to... No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about not 
facing Mecca three times and praying, doing things, doing kind things for people. That's what he means when he says works. He says your faith is useless otherwise. Faith is useless if it isn't used in God's service. In fact, Jesus puts it this way. He said, at the end of the world, when I'm judging, people can come up to me and everybody's going to think they know me. But what matters is if I know them. And he says, I'm going to tell this to some people. I'm going to say, you know what? When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in a hospital, you came and visited me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. You did those things for me. And Jesus says, they're going to turn to me and say, I don't think so. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will answer, I say, when you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. God's watching. He's looking to try to catch you doing something good because we are supposed to be his representatives on earth. And if we're not, what good are we? Seriously, what good are we? Here's the thing. We pray for things that are important in our lives. I'm not telling you to stop doing that. We're, we're allowed to do that. We're allowed to pray for the burdens in our lives. We're allowed to pray for healings. We're allowed to pray for provision that God will take care of us. He wants us to come with all these things. I would lump all these things together in our daily bread section of the Lord's Prayer. We're allowed to pray for daily bread. In fact, as we pray for the daily bread and God gives us and we start understanding who Jehovah Jireh is, our faith grows. It does. It grows step by step, but it will grow leaps and bounds when you exercise it by being kind to others. We are supposed to be people of great faith, but we are also supposed to be people of great kindness, and we can't have one without the other. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I do thank you.